they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. I remember this week I was thinking about my kids and the funny things they would say growing up. Like my son, he couldn't pronounce movie. He would say newbie. And so anytime he'd want to watch something, Dad, let's watch a newbie. And I, I, those are great memories. And uh, my daughter, she couldn't say my son's name. My son's name is Jackson, but we would call him Jack for short. Well, for some reason, Jack just wouldn't come out of her mouth. So she would say caca. <laughs> and when we told her about this later in life, she thought it was so funny that she was calling her brother, you know what? Um, and she likes to still call him that today <laughs> as a, a really beautiful namesake. <laughs> well, what's the most beautiful place that you've ever seen? What do you love about that space? I want you to picture it in your mind. What feelings does that place evoke in your heart? Peace? Calm? Joy? Have you ever thought about staying there and never coming home from that beautiful place? Yeah, for a moment, right? We want to stay in that amazing place. But then you remember your work, your home, your animals, your friends and your loved ones, your, your community, your church family. You remember all of the things that keep you rooted in what's most important in your lives, the things that give you purpose. It's tempting to desire to stay in a certain place of life that's tranquil, that's beautiful. It's tempting to stay in these phases of life maybe with kids or, or maybe in retirement that, that just seems so amazingly peaceful and even time, oftentimes glorious. But that isn't where any of us belong. Not forever, at least for now. There is so much brokenness and woundedness in our, in our world. There is so much pain that exists around us. It's evident in our own United Methodist denomination right here in this moment. And for some, even in our own families and homes. And with 24-hour news on TV and on social media, all of this is accessible all of the time. 
We have to consciously choose not to look in order to avoid the brokenness, the woundedness, and the pain that exists all around us. But I don't think that's an option for us as followers of Jesus. And Jesus knew that avoidance wasn't an option for him either. I absolutely love this scripture text that I read just a few moments ago. See, millions upon millions of people, of followers of Jesus, all around the world heard those same words today as the global church remembers the transfiguration of Jesus. Our text about the transfiguration begins about eight days after the disciples realized that Jesus was the Messiah. About eight days after Jesus told them about his impending death and resurrection. Three beloved disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they go up the mountain with him to pray. And while they were praying, the text says that the appearance of Jesus' face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. And Moses and Elijah appeared. Moses was the one who led the people, the Hebrew people, out of slavery in the Exodus in Egypt about 1,500 years prior. And Elijah was this great and powerful prophet who defended the people of Israel from those who intended to cause them harm. And it was believed that both Moses and Elijah had been taken into the presence of God, which meant that they would have something unique to offer to Jesus after having been in God's presence for all of those years. Well, it's significant that Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking to Jesus. But what's even more important is what they said to him. In verse 31, it says, They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, the Greek word used here for departure refers to exodus. So Moses and Elijah are advising Jesus on his own exodus, which would take place in Jerusalem. This was a big deal. Jesus knew the plan, and his disciples have heard the plan, yet his disciples still don't quite get the plan. In verse 32, the story reveals that Peter, James, and John were tired because they climbed up a mountain. I'd be tired too, right? And they'd almost fallen asleep. And in the midst of their weariness, they saw the face of Jesus transform. They saw his appearance transform. And then they saw Moses and Elijah show up next to him. And you have to imagine how difficult this must have been to, to process in the moment. There are all sorts of layers that would have been confusing about this scene. Why does Jesus look different? He's dazzling white. But I remember him wearing that really drab beige garment on the way up the mountain. Did he find those clothes over here? What's the deal? And who's that with Jesus? Who are those guys? Oh, wait, is that Moses? Is that Elijah? Whoa, they're my superheroes. Why are they here? What are they talking about? This is incredible. As I read this text this week, you'll have to forgive me, but I had this kind of not-so-sanctimonious moment. As I was reading this, I was picturing Jesus, you know, in dazzling white, doing jazz hands like this, you know, like, and saying, how do you like me now, you know? I don't know why, that's just the picture that I had in my mind, and so you can dwell on that for the next few moments. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> 
Well, it was so incredible that Peter said in verse 33, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter wanted to stay up on that mountain. He got to see Moses and Elijah, his superheroes, and they were talking to Jesus, the one who he'd been living with for the last three years. This was an exciting moment. Plus, Jesus looked really cool and jazzy up on that mountain in all white. And that word used here for dwellings could also be translated tents. And that word is packed with meaning, but it essentially signifies that Peter wanted to stay there on that mountain. He didn't want to go back down the mountain into the valley. He wanted to be there in the presence of this glory with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And why wouldn't Peter want to spend time with them, the people that he cherished most in this place of radiance and beauty and glory? See, Peter knew that in the valley where the people lived, there were huge needs. People were hungry and in need of food. People were being exploited by the Roman Empire, and they needed hope and liberation. People were sick, and they needed healing. And just eight days earlier, Jesus told Peter and the disciples that he was going to die. Just eight days earlier, Jesus told Peter and the disciples that if they wanted to follow him, that they must take up their cross and follow him daily and die to themselves. It's kind of a terrible sales pitch, right? Like you're trying to build a movement, you're not inspiring a lot of people with that message, but this is what Jesus was saying. But down the mountain, Jesus asked the disciples to do what was difficult and possibly even deadly for them. So it's no wonder that Peter wanted to stay up on the mountain. It was beautiful. It was tranquil for a moment. But this wasn't the place they could stay. Peter didn't know what he was saying. And let's not be too hard on Peter because, come on, we likely would have done the very same thing that he did. And that's what's so encouraging about this text. There was grace for Peter not totally getting it. And there is grace for us too. Peter didn't know that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about his own exodus that would take place in Jerusalem. Moses led the Hebrew people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus would lead all of humanity out of their slavery, the sins of pride and greed and exploitation and selfishness, which lead to injustice and pain and oppression. Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, said earlier in the book of Luke, chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The exodus Jesus was leading would take him from one mount to another. From this Mount of Transfiguration to the Mount of the Cross, it was called Golgotha, and it was nothing really more than a hill outside of Jerusalem. There was nothing grandiose or dazzling or spectacular about the cross on that hill where Jesus hung. 
The glory and the radiance of the transfiguration is juxtaposed to the shame and the ugliness of the cross. Picking up in verses 34 and 35, while Peter was suggesting that they all stay on the mountain, uh, a, a, a cloud came and enveloped the mountain, and it symbolized the presence of God, and it came in and it overshadowed them, and they were afraid. And the voice of God said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus standing alone after that voice had spoken, and they were silent. Peter saw that Jesus was the Messiah after the healings, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and the authoritatively mind-blowing teaching of Jesus. Yet we know that Peter and the other disciples had a hard time accept, accepting that part of, of Jesus saying, you know what, I'm going to have to die. Even if he said he would be raised three days later, they had a hard time accepting that he was going to have to die. See, it makes sense to me that Peter, James, and John experienced the glory of the transfiguration because they needed that assurance of God's blessing on the plan that Jesus was fulfilling. They needed to see the gravity of that moment so that they could remember that this is what God intended for the Son, for Jesus. I can't imagine how bitter a pill it was for them to swallow. Jesus' disciples had hoped that the Messiah would come in with a sword and wave a magic wand to decimate the Roman Empire and restore Israel to its former glory. And then they thought that God would be worshipped everywhere because everyone would be afraid and they couldn't do anything but worship this God, this great God. That would have been a lot easier but it would have been no different than any other warring empire what any of them had done before. The same cycle of violence would have been repeated and violence would be required in order to maintain the quote-unquote peace. See, Jesus came to do something radically different. Jesus said he would have to die and then be resurrected three days later. And in that cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration, God told Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus. I think we can all relate with the disciples. They weren't getting what they expected. They thought they had Jesus figured out, and then they realized that they didn't. They saw Jesus do some amazing things, some miraculous things even. They witnessed the affect of Jesus on those that he spoke to and those that he touched. And they themselves were transformed because of their own experiences with Jesus. And after this remarkable encounter on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples were left silent. And that's probably not a bad idea for us either when we don't understand or when we have unmet expectations. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they didn't stay on that mount. We pick up the story in verses 37 through 43, and they come down the mount, and they met a man whose son was said to have a demon. And the boy's father told Jesus that the other, the other disciples couldn't set his son free. 
Now, we won't go into the details of exorcism here this morning, but a boy was afflicted with something that he couldn't control, and Jesus healed him or set him free. Now, I believe that Jesus got upset with his disciples because they, not because they were unable to do something, but because they didn't believe in the authority that he had bestowed upon him. The disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't fully trust the implications of that truth. If the Messiah gave them the authority to do something, they had what they needed to do that thing. Jesus wanted them to see that they were empowered to do the good that he had called them to do. Through Jesus, you are empowered to do the good that you are called to do. Thanks be to God. I think this gospel writer, Luke, was a genius. The way he told this story in chapter 9 and throughout the rest of the book, it's filled with all these ups and downs, these twists and turns. He carefully chooses his words that were aimed to communicate something so vital and so critical about the nature of Jesus. Jesus came into our mess and met us where we are. He doesn't make us scale up a mountain to glimpse of his glory and his goodness. No, he willingly came down from heaven. He willingly came down from that mountain. He came to set us free. And he was lifted up on this hill called Golgotha, and we see the ultimate glory of God in the crucified Christ we have a clear picture of what God is really like. A God who loves the world so much that God was willing to give of God's self in death in order to set us free and to put an end to the cycles of violence and usher in a new way of life, the life of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, which is both now and not yet. Jesus gave us glimpses of what this would be like when God's presence is made fully manifest, when there will be no more pain, there will be no more death, there will be no more relational strife, there will be no more sorrow. And Jesus' own resurrection was the down payment on the resurrection and restoration of all things, including us. This is the hope that we have to look forward to, and we celebrate that fully on Easter Sunday. But now in this season, before Lent, we remember this moment of transfiguration and what it signifies. It reminds us of who Jesus is, the Messiah. It shows us what Jesus gave up, peace and tranquility. It models for us the way which Jesus calls us into, entering into the mess of this world as followers, empowered to bring healing and hope to the places that are filled with pain and despair. Part of the rhythm of worship in this church mirrors what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. See, when we gather together to worship each week, we get a glimpse of the glory of God as we sing, as we pray, as we hear the word declared. 
And then when we receive the benediction at the end of the service, we're being sent out in the name of the one who calls us and empowers us to enter into the broken places of this world, the places where God's hope and light and love are needed most. Our season of Lent begins this Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday. And next Sunday, we begin this new series, which is entitled Busy, Reconnecting with an Unhurried God. In a world of go, 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 we are inviting you to enter into a six-week journey of slowing down. Somehow, we've come to believe that being busy is a non-negotiable thing. And that it defines our worth. But thankfully, God doesn't define our worth based on our productivity. During these six weeks leading up to Easter, Christians have historically given something up as a means of focusing deeply on God. What if we thought less about giving something up and more about making room for the things that are most important in our lives? I want to invite you to make room for something that is very important. And it's actually someone. We have the privilege of gathering here as a church each week. We worship together. and We get glimpses of the glory and beauty of Jesus. You all participate in compassionate service, in, in acts of charity, in charitable giving. You, you're doing amazing work. And there are so many good things happening in and through the life of this church that we need to share this with others. During the season of Lent, I invite you to make room for a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, a family member, or someone else that's in close proximity to your life. You're here at Westlake UMC because your life has been impacted by God's love and your faith has been cultivated by the ministry of this church. If you have been encouraged, cared for, empowered to do meaningful ministry, then you are perfectly suited to help spread the word about your church. We can't keep this all to ourselves. We need to share this with others. During the season of Lent, we are inviting you into a six-week practice of prayer and service and invitation and this practice will begin next week and end on Easter Sunday. And here's what we're inviting into you in weeks one and two, inviting you into a prayer practice. Begin praying about a person or, or a family that you might invite to attend an Easter service with you. In weeks uh, three and four, there is a service practice. Find an opportunity to serve that person or that family. And in weeks five and six, Invite this person or family to attend an Easter service with you. And you can do that with these handy-dandy little postcards that are out in the lobby at the Welcome Center. You can share uh, stuff on social media. There's going to be all kinds of events uh, up and ready. Uh, there's already a, a general um, series promotional that's up on our Facebook page. But you can share those things with the church or with the people that you are praying about inviting here to be a part of this. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself. Let's go down the mount. And let's go where people need us the most. Amen.